You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now skip down to verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." Now flip over to chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, uh, week two of our Epiphany series. Last week, as we are anticipating beginning this series, I was made aware that I failed to come up with a title for this series. If you know anything about me, I am horrible with titles. Sermon titles, series titles, like it's the one way I feel very connected to my fellow millennials. We don't do titles. So uh, I did what any wise, experienced pastor in my position does. I Googled it. I am statements. And to my surprise, I thought that that there was a universal understanding that I am statements refers to Jesus's seven uh, Gospel of John statements about himself, but I was dead wrong. All of the results that I found on the first page of my Google search were personal I am statements, personal affirmations to tell yourself I am unique, I am bold, I am strong, I am sexy. I am rich, I am successful, I am beautiful, I am all these things. And there were posters and there were t-shirts to buy and there were decks of cards, 52 I am statements to remind yourself every single week of the year. One search result came up, quote, I am statements to change your life. I was like, okay, that's what I'm talking about. Click on it. Again, personal I am statements that we tell ourselves. I am this, I am that. It's pretty common for people to to do this, and it's even common among Christians, we think that we are what we say we are. And that if we say it enough to ourselves, and we believe it enough about ourselves, the more that we will become it. Now, don't get me wrong. It is vital that we as Christians understand what the Bible says about our identity in Jesus Christ, which is a new identity, who Jesus says we are. But The point I'm trying to make is that the I am statements that we need most, the I am statements that are truly going to transform our lives, they're not about you and they're not from you. They're from Jesus and they're about Jesus. The statements that Jesus makes about himself. 
And so this epiphany, we are focusing on those famous, true I am statements from the Gospel of John. And we're looking at the second statement that Jesus makes in John chapter 8. Now, a little bit of context for Jesus' statement here. Now, Jesus is speaking at the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles. And this was a festival where God's people gathered annually to remember the season in their past where God had delivered them out of Egypt and brought them through the wilderness and led them by day by a cloud and at night by a what? Fire. And according to tradition, this was a very bright celebration for Israel. People would sing and they would dance in the streets and they would carry torches and they'd be lighting up the city. And, and what's unique about this place that Jesus is speaking, he is speaking, we, we, we we're told later in verse 20 that he is speaking near the treasury at the temple. And so what we know about that section of the sort of middle part of the courts is that there were four large lamps and on each lamp there were four huge bowls of oil that would be lit at night. And at this moment, Jerusalem would have never been brighter, never more illuminated, never more glowing than right now. Jesus is speaking. And this is a very intentional setting for what Jesus is going to say about himself. It's with all this background between these burning, brilliant, bright lamps among all of this religious celebration and religious symbolism that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So let's begin here. Let's begin with finding light. Uh, I read a news article from earlier last year in 2021, and the article was titled, An Ancient Star Casts New Light on the Birth of the Universe. So scientists apparently had found this distant star and it's believed that the details about this star could help us understand our universe a little bit better and maybe even shed light on the origins of life itself. A lot of weight to put on one star. And it discussed the really fascinating methods and technology that they've used to now study this star, measuring the brightness, measuring some sort of wavelengths, even measuring the chemical makeup of this star. And there's so much to observe in our vast universe and, and, and science helps us to achieve this. And, and the funny thing is that the Bible actually encourages this sort of thing. God tells Abraham, look into the sky and if you can number the stars, the innumerable amount of stars, it's an illustration of how many descendants I'm going to give to you that are going to come through your family line. The psalmist sang about the bright stars that declare God's handiwork, that declare the glory of God and, and help travelers navigate the dark night. Stars give light. Stars tell stories. Stars even sing songs. Science can prove that. Look that up on your own time. Don't open a new tab and look that up right now. Do it later. But stars sing songs. But like anything in creation, the stars that exist are intended to draw our attention toward the source of it all. Even the most brilliant supernova in the sky are beams of light that find their source in something greater, something more brilliant, something 
brighter, a true light as John describes it. See, the gospel writer has no access to multi-million dollar telescopes that's able to see beyond what the naked eye can see, no training in cosmology, no training in astronomy, but he didn't need that. Not to observe what he has seen and experienced or what he describes in 1 John as what he has seen and experienced and even touched with his own hands. In his introduction to the gospel, John says this. Look with me again in verses 4 through 5 and in verse 9. The life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Light is a very important theme in the Gospel of John. In fact, the Gospel writer uses light 16 times to describe the person and the work of Jesus Christ. If, we need, if we're going to understand who Jesus is according to John, we have to understand this illustration of light. And just like at the creation of the world, as we're told in the book of Genesis, where darkness and void and chaos was over the deep, we're told that God spoke, let there be light, and light appeared. He separated the light from the darkness. And John is saying there's something here, there's, there is a component that has been misunderstood up until this point that you need to understand, something or rather someone present at this scene. But what's unique here in John is that God's word that is spoken into the darkness isn't simply language, it's not a command, it's not a theoretical or even a theological idea or an argument. God's word of light is his very own son, Jesus Christ. The one who gathers all of the brilliance and radiance and glory of God into one single beam, one who powerfully pierces through the darkness of our human experience. The Apostle Paul would, would put it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts, this is where it gets personal, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How do we see, how do we observe, how do we experience the brilliance and the glory of the eternal God? It's found in the face of Jesus. This light isn't so far off that only the most brilliant minds and the most expensive machines can find. The search for life and light doesn't need to take us to far off galaxies doesn't need to take us down winding paths of self-discovery. It doesn't need to take us on endless spiritual pilgrimages of enlightenment. We don't have to go anywhere and listen. We don't have to become anything to find it. Because as John tells us, this light, this true light, came into our world to find us. To give light to everyone who would receive him by faith and light is such a fitting illustration of who Jesus is and what he has done because light's ability to come to us, to get to us, is far greater than our ability to get to light. Think about a star. Think about the vast 
distance that the light of one star had to travel to get to us. Millions of light years away. And how ridiculous we would be to think that we could somehow reach that expanse, reach on the other side in our own strength and our own ability. And so it is with the light of Christ. The essence of religion is essentially trying and searching to find the light, but the essence of the gospel, the essence of John's gospel is that the light of Christ has come to us. The light of Christ has come across that vast, impossible, insurmountable expanse to reach us and to shine the glory of God into our hearts. Amen? Finding light is not about our religious search. It's about who Jesus is. Let's look secondly, though, and this is the issue that we have to confront in this passage and elsewhere in John. Let's look at fleeing the light. Jesus is the light of the world that came to illuminate everyone. But throughout the Gospel of John, it deals with a question, a really important question. And the question is this. What if some reject this light? What if you reject this light? What if people prefer to walk in darkness more than they prefer to walk in the light? And the truth is that Jesus makes it clear that many will. Many did. Many have. Many will today. That's the nature of light. Light is polarizing, just like God's word in Genesis separated, God's word separated the light from darkness, so it is with God's word, Jesus Christ, and the ministry of Jesus. The ministry of Jesus separates those who welcome his light and those who try to avoid it. It's interesting, as we read on in the eighth chapter of John, we read that some people believed Jesus, some people said we're in and trusted in him, they received Christ. And at the very same moment, others picked up stones to throw them at Jesus. Some said, we're in. And some rejected him with everything that they had. Think about this in terms of the work of the gospel today. We are called, as God's people, every single one of his children, we are called to share the good news of Jesus Christ with anyone and everyone who will listen. We don't discriminate who the light of Christ will shine on. We don't make that decision for God. We don't make that decision for other people. We tell all to come and receive Jesus Christ. But the truth is, and some of us know from experience, hopefully all of us know from experience, not all appreciate that light. Some will shrug it off. Some are like master diverters in, in the conversation, like, oh, changing gears. Let's, uh, let's talk about the weather. Some people will say kindly, no thanks. And some people will get, as fa get you know, away as fast as possible. There are going to be people that, are say, that say to us, that is not for me. I do not want that. I reject that. As one commentator put it, there are those who refuse to come to the light. And if they remain in darkness, it's not because there was no illumination for them, but because they deliberately prefer the darkness. That's what John is saying here. 
This is because in a lot of ways, the light of Christ poses a personal threat to us. Think about light. When light illuminates, it also exposes. It reveals. It reveals things about us that we would prefer to remain in the dark about. That's, that statement of personal I am statements gets really bleak and dark when the light of Christ and his brilliance shines on it. When we realize who he is and what we are not in light of who he is. So I'm reading this passage and I'm preparing for today. It made me wonder, and I can only wonder, how many people reject Jesus not because they refuse to accept who Jesus is, but because they refuse to accept certain things about themselves that Jesus reveals. Things about themselves that the light of Christ illuminates that they didn't want to know was there. Carl Jung, a 20th century psychiatrist, he described something that he called the shadow self. And he believed that this was the sight of every, in every human psyche or whatever, the sight of repressed desires, emotions, and impulses that are hidden from our own conscious awareness. Thoughts, experiences, fears, taboo desires, impulsive anger, whatever, the things about us that we reject and repress. If we're to be honest with ourselves, we all have those things, well, if Carl Jung is right, we can't be honest with ourselves, but we all have these things about us that if confronted, if we were made aware of, we would dislike, we would be ashamed of, we wouldn't even know what to do with these things. Things that we would think would cause others, including God, to reject us. And so instead of confronting these things, instead of being honest with ourselves and others about these things, our minds try to pretend that it's not there. I don't know what you're talking about. And if those areas feel threatened, and Jesus is a threat to those areas, we often seek to protect them. If he's right, there's this like defense mechanism that is protecting us even when we don't know what's going on. Have you ever had one of those moments where you know that you should pray? You ever had one of those moments when you know you should pray with someone else out loud? You ever had one of those moments where you know you should repent and confess your sin? You ever had one of those moments when you know you should humble yourself and say the most difficult words to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Or you knew the right thing to do and it felt like actual physical resistance. Like there was something stopping you that you couldn't explain, just something stopping you from carrying out whatever righteous act you felt that you needed to do at that moment. I can't. Truth is, I felt this today. And it's because walking in the light of Christ terrifies the shadow self. Or, let's use biblical language, walking in the light of Christ terrifies what Paul would call elsewhere the old man. The body of flesh, the works of flesh that he explains in the, in the uh, epistle of Galatians that puts up 
a mean, nasty fight against the Spirit. Warring against God's holy work within us. Saying, mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. I feel very alone in this like inner turmoil right now. <laughs> this is, I should just lay down on the couch and just share all my deepest, darkest secrets. Time for an illustration, lighten the mood. So uh, Netflix released a BBC uh, remake of Bram Stoker's famous story of Dracula, but it was a very 21st century rendering of it. And the story went that Dracula was asleep in a coffin at the bottom of the sea for like a century and a half, and then he emerges and steps into modern-day England today. And at the very end of this three-episode series, there's a plot twist that is shocking. If you haven't seen it by now, you probably won't. So, so here you go. So anyone that knows anything about Dracula knows that Dracula can't handle crosses, mirrors, and sunlight, right? He lurks in the dark, uh, he won't go into homes uninvited, that sort of thing. But at the end of the series, one of the main characters named Zoe is in a room with Dracula, a very dark room, and she makes a mad dash to the end of the room and she's running across the table and in slow motion she leaps at these blackout curtains and tears them off the wall and it instantly fills the room with light. And Dracula is in the corner and he like cowers down and he begins to scream like he's dying. And then after some time he realizes he doesn't die or melt or whatever. Nothing happens to Dracula. And again, this is such a 21st century version of it, but he realizes all of the things that he avoids, light, mirrors, relationships, the cross, they were all just made up ways of avoiding the thing that he feared most, not death, but the fear of being seen, the fear of being exposed. It was his way, like many of us, his way of avoiding reality, the reality of what he was, the reality of what he'd become, the monster that he'd become. And he hated what the light did to him. A sanctified version of that story, John in chapter 3 says this, the light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Isn't that interesting? The light of Christ can be experienced in two very different ways. It can be experienced as heaven on earth or hell on earth. Uh, I'm going to butcher his name, but Jean-Paul Sartre, French existentialist, he described hell in a play, like a three-person play. He described hell as being in a room and not being able to avoid the watchful gaze of others. He described hell as being inescapably seen and known by others. And this may be why many of us experience resistance in our faith and resistance in our Christianity. 
why maybe many of us experience resistance in our growing and maturing in faith. Maybe this is why you have resisted getting involved in church community. Maybe this is why you've been content to sort of sneak in and sneak out. Maybe this is why you find that you push people away when they get too close. Maybe this is why you find that you can't explain why, but you don't return phone calls or text messages when people that care about you reach out. Why it seems easier to ghost than to relate. Maybe this is why you find it hard to admit when you're wrong. Maybe this is hard, why this, maybe this explains why it's hard to say sin when things are sin. Maybe this is why you find that you always wind up being the victim in almost every situation. This is maybe why your pool of relationships just seems to be shrinking the older that you get. For some, this may even be why despite knowing the truth of who Jesus is, you are still afraid of trusting him with your whole life. You're still afraid of stepping out into the light of his salvation through repentance, faith, and baptism. See, the myth that exists today is that you have two options for your life. And the two options are these. You can either be seen or you can be loved. And if people see you for who you are, then they're not going to be able to love you for who you are. And so in order for people to continue to love you, they can't be allowed to fully see you. I think this, why, this, I think this explains why social media presence is so widely received by so many people. Because we can live these curated, filtered edited versions that we want to present. We present the person that we want the world to see, where we can look great, where we can sound smart and educated, where we can appear to have life altogether. Meanwhile, we are falling apart behind the scenes. While being fully seen may feel like hell on earth, the good news is that Jesus sees you through and through. Jesus sees you better than you see you. And the good news is that he loves you completely. And he loves you more than anyone, including yourself, could ever love you. And what this means, what the gospel of Jesus Christ means, and you need to get this. What the gospel means is that you will never have to choose love over light. You will never have to choose being loved over being seen, not when you can have both completely in Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 tells us this. He, speaking of God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Cleansing, healing, restoration. What this gospel means is that Jesus is not a threat to being loved. Jesus is not a threat to you living free. He is the only, and hear me, the only way to truly experience it. The light that burns with blinding, brilliant, piercing light, we're told, 
allowed himself for our sakes to become extinguished. Out of love, he faced, Jesus faced the unimaginable terror of darkness on the cross so that we could experience the unimaginable freedom of his light, so that we could be transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. In fact, we're told in another gospel, Matthew, that his moment of agony and dread was so terrible, so dark on the cross that all of creation couldn't help but turning off the light with him. For three long, agonizing hours, Matthew says, darkness was over the whole land. Jesus was plunged into our darkness. Jesus was plunged into our isolation. Jesus was plunged into our judgment. Jesus was plunged into God's wrath so that we could be delivered out of it. Why is this important? It means that this Jesus who is calling you out of hiding, this Jesus is the one who is saying, stop running. This is the Jesus that is telling you right now, stop resisting. And this is the Jesus who right now by his gospel and his spirit is inviting you to walk in light, to walk in freedom, to walk in his reality. So let's look finally at following the light. Look at me again in verse 12. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, this is first and foremost a statement about who he is. But who Jesus is then determines how we relate to him. This statement, I am the light of the world, shapes our lives and it shapes how we respond to him. To escape the darkness and all of its despair, to experience the freedom of being seen and loved, to live unashamed, to live as the real us, Jesus says we have to follow him. Yes, the light of Christ comes to us. Yes, the light of Christ meets us in our darkness. Yes, he opens our eyes to see the reality of our sin and the beauty of his salvation. But we cannot miss this very important point here. Jesus says, whoever follows me. Whoever follows me. This is an experience for those who step out and move in faith. The same light that draws us out of darkness now for the Christian energizes us to walk and to remain in his light. And the Bible describes walking in the light in a few very unique ways. It means that we refuse to participate in the works of darkness and the works of sin that once marked our lives. To walk in the light means to make a clean break from darkness. It means to make a clean break from living in the shadows. It also means, according to 1 John, confessing our sins, walking in honesty so that we can have fellowship with Jesus and his people. Walking in the light means discerning God's will for your life. It means holding fast to his word of life and obeying by the power of his Holy Spirit. 
Walking in the light means reflecting the light of Jesus Christ in our lives, shining bright as light as well. And the only way that we can do this, the only way that we can reflect the light of Jesus Christ and walk in his light is that we stay close to Jesus. Because like the bright moon that has no light in and of itself, we shine bright as we remain close to Christ. Remember, again, Jesus is at the temple in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles where people are gathering to remember that God led the children of Israel through the wilderness with a fire by night. And if you remember our first gathering here in August, when we were so like caught off guard by having to move suddenly, and we had so many questions about what is next for our community and what's next for our church, we opened up God's word and we looked at the book of Exodus and we were reminded about God's people being led and their one responsibility was simple, stay close to the fire. Stay close to the fire. And so it is with us. So it is with us, reality. As we journey through our season of uncertainty, not knowing what 2022 is going to bring, as we journey through our moments of darkness or sickness or terrifying whatever, as we journey through our challenge, as we journey through our temptation, the call is simple. We have to stay close to Christ, the light of the world. How do we stay close? We stay close through prayer. We stay close through abiding in God's word daily. And we stay close through fellowship with his church. And the promise that we have, the promise today is not that Jesus is going to tell us what the game plan is. We may not even know what the next step is. But the promise that we have is that the light of the world is with us. And he's leading us through our dark moment. And he will protect us. And he will lead us safely home. Amen? Let's commit to stay close to the fire. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.